Bienvenidos a la Daily Hustle. Soy Enrique Byron. Sí, presidente es la mejor cerveza. Y 818 es el mejor tequila. No abate por No Filter Network. Miguelito. Sandiaguito, a.k.a. Bobby Ball, a.k.a. Bobby Barrels, not with us this morning, but dead or alive, job or no job, we properly salute our boy. Yes, 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 yes. Whoo. Remember this, folks, when we are juiceful, we are useful. And when we are juiceless, we are fucking useless. Today is September the 11th, 2023, and we are sponsored by KT Tape. Yeah, here's some skin prep wipes. This is the Pro Oxygen Tape. This is the next level stuff that I'm actually going to fire my hamstring as soon as I get off the air here. And uh, the blister prevention for all our ultra runners, the go-hards that like to hit the trails or the pavement, whatever. But we can't forget to keep our package safe, shape safe. That's right. We want to keep it tight. We want to keep it neat. We want to keep it clean. And we want to keep it shape free. Uh, Try Verge, another one of our partners that, It's got these beautiful little focus things. You go ahead and open this up. It's got honey, lemon, and a little bit of cannabis. Mm. Tasty. But will help with focus. Just dial you in. Get the mind right. It's a good place to be. Not like a heavy bong rip in the morning. Uh, you know, smoky pokey. Uh, nah, nah, that, was, that was a whole different level back in the day. Also got this beautiful let them play mug that'll be sipping my coffee out of. Uh, don't forget the Daily Hustle 222. Unfiltered life guidance from a human crash test tummy 222. Call them antidotes, call them stories, whatever you want. Uh, basically about my life, about other people's lives. And they all come complete with lessons. That's the beautiful part of this book. You go ahead and pick up. The DH-222 along with the fuck it list. That's right. Also available on ericburns.com where you can order a footboard. Disclaimer. We have got actually uh, an issue with the footboards. They're being shipped currently to San Diego. They will not be there until the 23rd. So I've been getting a ton of inquiries through social media about that, I apologize. If you've ordered a footboard, hang tight. It will be coming. But uh, we also had a change in guard, so to speak, with the 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 where it goes and then it gets shipped out. So in this process now, I finally will be getting the emails. It's been a pain in the ass. And once again, I'm sorry for that, but it will be coming. So today... Obviously, a very emotional day, 
of remembrance for anybody who lived through 9-11. And I think it's one of those things where if you, well, I don't want to say obviously my age. I mean, I was 20-something years old at the time. But the thing was about 9-11 is that I feel like my, my life or just life in general, I say my life, that's not fair to say, but life in general, as we know it, was pre-9-11 and post-9-11. And the world just completely changed. And I thought I was laying in bed thinking about that last night and just all of the things and, you know, what it was like and waking up that morning and seeing the second Twin Tower collapse was just... It was surreal, and I remember going to the ballpark, not knowing what to do. Obviously, I mean, the whole world was shut down. All the planes were grounded, and then later that night, just sitting around with a bunch of buddies in San Francisco, not knowing how to act, not knowing what to say, and we had found out, too, that one of my real good friend's father was on flight 93, Andrew Garcia. And so all of that, just trying to digest that was heavy. And I think that if you did live through that time, uh, you didn't necessarily even have to know somebody personally connected to 9-11, but I think we all felt it. I mean, I think in total it was what over 3,000 people that were killed. And then shortly thereafter, we actually, I remember I, this was, this was wild, but we eventually decided to go to a bar and we went to bar none on union street and we were sitting around and everybody in the bar felt the same way. I believe as we did. Once again, it was that awkward feeling. Obviously, we weren't there to celebrate anything. We also weren't necessarily there to drink away our sorrows. We were just collectively coming together as individuals. And at midnight, I remember all of a sudden, this dude stood up on top of the bar put his hand over his heart and began singing the national anthem there were probably maybe 50 people in there and within seconds in unison all 50 had their hats off over their heart singing along with them one of the more emotional experiences I've ever had in a bar and definitely one of the coolest experiences that I've ever had. So I think looking back, it reminded me how proud I am to be an American. And in a day and age where so often it's not cool to love America. And we have so many things that are flawed within 
the structure of our country. Yet, I take great solace in knowing that when our backs are put against a wall and we're faced up against these great challenges, whatever that be, to see the country unified and rally together at that point was one of the most awesome moments and proud moments of my entire life. That's why we're fucking Americans. Because when you flick us in the air, we will punch you in the fucking face. And that was a statement period of time that I believe altered history and altered a mentality in this country. Or I could even say just brought it out. But now 22 years later, as we sit back and reflect upon it, let 9-11 be a reminder, not of the great loss and sorrow and everything else that we all endured, but let it go ahead and remind each and every one of us that the only way to get through something like that is to unify, is to be able to come together and fucking fight back. And that was what happened. And now whether this was, you could say through military actions or whatever, but mainly it was the spirit of the American people. It was when we went back to playing baseball and that night in New York, the first game back with Mike Piazza and hitting the home run. But then I was there like a month later and we're playing the Yankees in the postseason. And still at this point, there was rubble, missing signs everywhere, Still people looking for their loved ones. You know, New York was in shambles. But the spirit of that city and the spirit of our country prevailed. I'll never forget 56,000 people standing on their feet. And I stepped into the batter's box against Mariano Rivera. And it was, again, a very euphoric experience the season was on the line the Yankees had come back we were took a two nothing lead they came back to make it two two but here I was that was the last out and I remember before getting in the box standing outside of that batter's box and looking around the stadium And watching 56,000 people go absolutely fucking berserk. And I knew that they were rooting not just 
for the Yankees in that moment, not just for Mariano Rivera to strike me out in that moment. But they were rooting for a city that had just gone through hell. Now, did I try to strike out? Fuck no. I was trying to hit a homer to tie the game. But I also knew that that moment was bigger than me. And no matter what happened, I was going to take my cuts. And if I did so happen to punch out, oh, well. If I happen to hit a home run, hey, even better. But I wanted to take in that time period because 22 years later now, I could still feel it through my body. I could feel the chills. I could see the people, see the faces. It was wild. It was something that, unless you were there that night, it's really tough to explain. If you want to get a better idea of potentially what that experience was like, you could go watch Moneyball. It's at the very beginning of the movie with those 56,000 people standing up and cheering. But now, 22 years later, look, we've onward, upward, rebuilt. The you know current One World Trade is just an, an awesome a remembering place for all of the victims, a gorgeous building. They have the, the two, the waterfalls. It's just a, uh, it's a testament to the American people. It's a testament to the people of New York City. And I think ultimately we all just need to make sure we never forget. Never, ever, 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 ever forget. So, one of the guys that was on Flight 93, which was a flight that was crashed in Pennsylvania, was a guy by the name of Todd Beamer. And when I was thinking of a quote this morning, because every single morning, whether I share it here on the Daily Hustle or not, I basically will go to my quote board. This is a family quote board. And I put up a new quote. So this morning's, without hesitation, it was, let's roll. And those were Todd Beamer's famous two words that they heard. And then uh, minutes later, as they tried to overtake the cockpit, the plane crashed. So because of that, obviously, Todd got a lot of coverage. He was an American hero. There's now, I think, like libraries and schools and all sorts of different things named after him. And what exactly went on on that plane? We got no idea. I would say we have no idea. We do have an idea. But whether it was Todd, whether it was Mr. Garcia... Whether it was anybody else, because there were not a lot of people on that plane. It was like 33. 
to think that they sacrificed their lives for the greater good of this country. And they were stuck in this predicament of like, well, what are we going to do? And they made a selfless choice that I think will forever. <laughs> I, I think obviously I'm forever you know, grateful for. We all should be forever grateful for. So I, I look, I just pulling it up here today. I just read a little bit more about Todd and just kind of to hear his story. So he was born November 24th, 1968 in Flint, Michigan to David Beamer, an IBM sales representative, and Peggy Jackson Beamer, a muralist, the middle child of three and the only son, Beamer, and his two sisters, Melissa and Michelle, were raised with a strong biblical value system and work ethic. The family relocated to, I don't even know how to say this, Poughkeepsie? What a great town, Poughkeepsie, P-O-U-G-H-K-E-E-P-S-A, New York, and then Wheaton, Illinois, a suburb of West Chicago where David worked at um, Dahl, a computing technical agency. Beamer attended Wheaton Christian Grammar School where he played soccer, basketball, baseball. He attended Wheaton Academy, a Christian high school from 83 to 85 where he excelled in the same sports. He was elected class vice president in his junior year after David was promoted to vice president of Omdahl's California headquarter. The family moved and Beamer spent his senior year at Los Gatos High School. So, a Bay Area kid. Beamer attended Cal State University, Fresno. So, Fresno State, where he majored in physical therapy and played baseball in hopes of playing professionally. But injuries he suffered in an automobile accident ended these plans. He returned home to Illinois and transferred to Wheaton College, a Christian liberal arts college. At Wheaton... He majored initially in medicine before switching to business. He continued to play baseball and as a senior became the captain of the basketball team. He graduated in 1991. So just kind of just a little more of a, a, you know, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, but the whole flight 93 thing, it, President Bush had an amazing quote here. And I want to get to it for whatever reason. It's here it is. All right. So here's the story of Flight 93. It was scheduled to depart at 8 a.m., but the Boeing 757 did not depart until 42 minutes later due to Runway traffic delays. Four minutes later, American Airlines Flight 11 crashed into the World Trade Center North Tower at 9.03. 17 minutes later, as United Airlines Flight 175 crashed into the South Tower, United 93 was climbing and cruising altitude. Heading west over New Jersey and into Pennsylvania at 9.25, Flight 93 was above eastern Ohio, and as pilots radioed Cleveland controllers to inquire about an alert that had been flashed in his cockpit computer screen, to, quote, beware of cockpit intrusion. Three minutes later, Cleveland controllers could hear screams over the cockpit's microphone. Moments later, the hijackers, led by Lebanese Ziad Samir Jara, took over the plane's controls, disengaged the autopilot, and told passengers, keep remaining sitting, we have a bomb on board. 
Beamer and other passengers were herded into the back of the plane. Within six minutes, the plane changed course and was heading for Washington, D.C. Several of the passengers made phone calls to loved ones who informed them about the two planes that had crashed in the World Trade Center and a third in the Pentagon. Beamer tried to place a credit card call through a phone located on the back of the plane seat, but was routed customer service representative who passed him a GTE earphone supervisor with FBI agents listening in on their call. Beamer informed Jefferson the hijackers had taken over United 93 and that one passenger had been killed. He also stated that two of the hijackers had knives and one appeared to have a bomb strapped around his waist. When the hijackers veered the plane sharply south, Beamer explained, we're going down, we're going down. Following this, a passenger and flight crew decided to act. According to accounts of cell phone conversations, Beamer, along with Mark Bingham, Tom Burnett, and Jeremy Click, formed a plan to take the plane back from the hijackers. They were joined by other passengers, including Lou Knack, Rich Guadango, Alan Beaver, Beaven, Honor Elizabeth Wayno, Linda Groland, and William Cashman, along with flight attendants Sandra Bradshaw and CeCe Lyles, in discussing their options and voting on a course of action, ultimately deciding to storm the cockpit and take over the plane. Beamer told Jefferson the group was planning to, quote, jump on the hijackers and fly the plane to the ground before the hijackers' plan could be followed through. Beamer recited the Lord's Prayer and the 23rd Psalm with Jefferson, prompting others to join in. Beamer requested of Jefferson, if I don't make it, please call my family and let them know how much I love them. After this, Jefferson heard multiple, heard muffled voices and Beamer clearly answering, are you ready? Okay. Let's roll. These were the last words spoken by Beamer, heard by Lisa Jefferson. Whew. Chills. Absolute chills. So, needless to say, it was just a wild time, a wild day. And I'm proud to have the people of Flight 93 here to protect and serve our country. All right. Let's uh, move on now. We ever really move on, but... I got a daily hustle story today. I'm a child psychologist in the Netherlands. Home to the world's happiest kids. Six things parents here never do. This is a good one. And by the way, we're about to get into all sorts of the wacky weekend of sports. But of course, we start with life life optimization stuff here. We never drive our kids to school when we can cycle. There's a huge cycle culture here. And it starts early. As soon as a baby can sit up, they're fastened to the front of a parent's bike and cycled around in any type of weather. Biking through the storm and proper rain gear, of course, teaches that no matter what kind of obstacles they face in their lives, they'll be able to get through it. It also teaches independence. By the time most kids are 9 or 10, many parents trust them to bike to school on their own or their friends' houses. This freedom and trust helps young people develop into autonomous, self-sufficient, confident adults. Makes total sense to me. Number two, we never hover over our kids. It's very common to see Dutch kids run free on the playground without too much supervision. An An expat parent told me once how shocked they were when they went to a Dutch playground for the first time. 
All the parents were sitting on a bench calmly chatting amongst themselves while their kids were climbing, running, and falling all over the place. Oh, let them play. Number three, we never work more than 40 hours a week. One of the reasons Dutch people are so happy is that they value work-life balance. A 2021 study found that nearly half the workforce in the Netherlands had part-time jobs. Dutch fathers also take at least one day off each week. Their papa day, as they call it, to spend with their children. Number four, we never eat too many meals separately from our kids. Dutch parents make a point to at least have one meal together every day. It's a time for the family members to connect and talk about their day. Totally agree on this. Do not miss a family dinner. Number five, we never throw away structure. From the moment their children are born, Dutch parents are advised to provide Rust, Reinheid, Reglamat, which roughly translates to rest, cleanliness, and structure. Awesome. Uh, six, we never say our opinion is the last word. Eternal learners, I love this. Dutch parents want to make their kids feel both seen and heard. They involve their children in the decision-making process as soon as they can understand language and communicate. This way, kids will learn to negotiate and set personal boundaries from a young age. When we ask for children's opinions and truly listen to them, they'll be more likely to develop a sense of positive self-worth. So there they are, these six things that they don't do, parents don't do in the Netherlands. I think I got to make an IG video on this. I mean, it's literally that good. By the way, speaking of IG, I posted this up on my Instagram account this morning. It's at eburns22. And for years, I'd been taking Theodore, my bulldog. Now we have five, but this is one specific one that has an obsession with the leash. And so he's been getting up with me pretty early in the morning as the sun's coming up. And... He is so jazzed that he wants to go out. So I, I've been taking him out. But it is a fucking fight with this leash because all he wants to do is play tug of war. So it's not even really a walk or a run, but it's like literally like I'm running like this because, but I'm moving at a snail's pace because I'm dragging him along. And so finally this morning, I said, fuck it. And I just dropped the leash. And I just kept running. Well, you know what he did? Put the leash in his mouth. And he was running. And he was looking at me like, look here, fucko. That's all I needed you to do years ago and we won't have this struggle. I'm like, oh, okay. My bad. Ah, moral story. And this was a caption. I should have let go a long ass time ago. So uh, beagreatteacher.com. Not one of our title sponsors, but contributors to the Daily Hustle each and every single day. Thought of the day. If we all did the things we are capable of doing, we would literally astound ourselves. Hmm. Huh. Yeah, of course. Thomas Alva Edison. I mean, why wouldn't this be Thomas Edison? Is Alva Thomas Edison's middle name? Huh. Uh, joke of the day. Why do seagulls fly over the sea? 
Because if they flew over the bay, they would be called bagels. Random fact of the day. Bullfrogs do not sleep. Really? Huh. Journal prompt of the day. What is the best way to lift somebody's spirit? Give them a compliment. A real one. Find something about someone that you like. And it's it could be something they're wearing. It could be something they've done. Whatever. It's not hard. Go out and uh, compliment a stranger today. It's even better. All right. So the big story. I mean, just what a wild weekend of sports. You have the U.S. Open going on. You had NC2A football, of course, prime. And the boys in Colorado were back in action, taking on Nebraska. We had the NFL in their first full week. And, of course, you had Major League Baseball and all the pennant races are really starting to heat up. But let's start with my new favorite athlete. And I'm not fucking around with you guys when I say this. Coco Goff. She is a fucking savage. She is everything that is right with American sports. She is incredibly athletic. She is cute. She is relentless. She's obviously young, 19 years old. And if there's one person, I think just even athletically, if there's one American athlete that we could put on a stage, let's say the Olympics were starting tomorrow. And you're like, this is a, this is a person this is the, that I want to represent our country and who we are. It's Coco Goff. The way she handled all of the pressure, the way she handled the situation going up against the arch nemesis from Belarus. They don't even put the flag up there, right? I got to imagine it's because of the whole shit with Russia right now. But Sebalenka, I'm not sure I was saying that right, but who gives a shit? The way she acted on the tennis court, her mannerisms, her antics, awful. The whiny, pouty, poor me face was just disgusting. It was fucking embarrassing. And yet, on the other side, you're watching a 19-year-old girl that is just out juicing her. There's no other way to put that. We start this program each and every single morning by saying, when we're juiceful, we're useful, and when we're juiceless, we're fucking useless. Well, Coco Goff, she's the epitome of juiceful. And to watch her dismantle Sevalenka after that first set that she lost was a thing of beauty. And then, back to the people of New York City, getting behind Coco the way they did. And to watch Sebalenka with that, like, eh, like trying to mock the fans. You could tell she's an emotional wreck. 
I, I could imagine that it's not great having all these people root against you. But look, I've been in that situation. I've had the 56,000 people. You know what I did? I put a fucking smile on my face. That's all you can do. And then to see Goff just as a, an obsessed pickleball player now, and I grew up playing tennis, but just to see the movements, it's like, holy shit. Like, I don't know if I've seen this before. The Williams sisters were great. They really were. And the thing about them, though, is that they had this sort of Eastern European power to them as well, as you saw from Sebalanka. That was her thing. It's just like when she, when she was on, she was on. And she could overpower Goff, but that was it. And then Goff would just, whatever it was. Ah, ah, I mean, and then you had the big obnoxious grunt from Sebalanka. And then you had Goff like, it's just, I look, she captured my heart. As soon as she won, she then immediately went straight to her box where the family sits, finds her dad, and gives her dad this gigantic hug, gives her mom a hug, goes to every single person in that box, including her coaches, Brad Gilbert. Good for him, man. I'd like to get Brad Gilbert on here. Talk about golf. But, wow. I mean... What a, what a story. And to have this be, I believe, her first major title and to have it come at the U.S. Open and to have it come in this situation and, you know, the, the way it did, like, I just, I think right now, as far as curating, when it comes to American athletes, I can't think of a bigger one. I'm serious. I, I, I think, I mean, Otani, but Otani's not even an American athlete, right? Um... Football? I mean, obviously, LeBron's LeBron in hoops. Is there somebody in football that, that could compete with that? I just, I just don't think there is. I, there, there's not. I mean, you could have said Tom Brady, but nah. Aaron Rodgers? No. It had to be someone that was just so fresh and new on the scene. But anyhow, that was um, really fun to watch. Over the weekend, as she dominated Sebalenka. Uh, then it was Dokovic taking care of business. That dude's I mean, the, the GOAT. The greatest of all time. So, a little less uh, interested in that one. It was Blake Shelton, the young American that ended up going down, but he got all the way to the semifinals. So, that was pretty cool to watch. Uh, the next thing we got here, look, Colorado absolutely fucking rolled. And if you're not a believer yet, you better start believing. There was a video of Dion after the game giving the game ball out to the AD of Boulder, uh, as well as their, I don't know if it's 90-something, 100-something. Uh, she looks like she's 200. Uh, but it, it's... That's so cool. She goes to every Buffs game, and she was up there on the stage with Dion after the game. And Dion, you know, just paid this really cool, nice tribute to the lady. Uh, he gave her the game ball. And then he's like, 
all right, you got to say it. You got to say it. And she's like, give me my theme music. And then it went on. It was so cool. Really, really cool. So a lot of upsets. The other big one was Texas in Alabama. Alabama's hurting. They're just, ah, this isn't. This isn't your older brother's Alabama. This is different. I'd love to say that, you know, this is going to be the dominant program. It's just not. I think there should be more parity going forward here. When you have a school like Texas that's going to fucking pay and you're getting all these transfers, these guys to come in, and it's it's going to happen. So, anyhow, the Texas Longhorns jumped seven spots to number four in the AP college football uh, poll that came out on Sunday after beating Alabama. And the Pac-12, listen to this shit. In the last year of the conference, the Pac-12 is going out with a bang. They became just a second conference to place as many as eight teams. Eight in the top 25. Georgia received 55 first place votes to remain the clear number one. Michigan was number two with two first place votes. And number three, Florida State moved up a spot and received three first place votes. Texas received two first place votes. After its biggest regular season victory in years, the Longhorns are in the top five for their first time since starting the 2010 season at number five. That was the Vince Young years. And have the highest ranking since finishing number two after losing the PCS National Championship game in Alabama in 2009. Behind quarterback Quinn Ewers, Texas became the first team to beat Alabama by double digits on its home field under coach Nick Saban. The loss dropped Alabama seven spots to number 10. It's lowest ranking since early last November when the Crimson Tide was also 10th. USC moved up a spot to number five, giving the each Power Five conference top five representation for the first time since 2017. No conference has more teams in the top 25 than the Pac-12. What is the fucking irony of that, man? How about it? which is in the last season of the current membership before 10 schools depart for other leagues in 2024. That just goes to show you, they really fucked up, didn't they? If you can't keep those schools together, you don't deserve to be a conference. Somewhere, somehow, some way, this whole thing just got really, really screwed up. It's, it's shocking. And I guess it started with UCLA and USC. And I wonder what kind of heads up they gave them. Now, from a financial position, you have to think, I mean, we're talking tens of millions of dollars every single year. I think the difference was like 30 to three. So you can see why they made the move. But it's just sad. doesn't make any sense. You have all these great schools in the West Coast and they're just going to be scattered all over the country now. Whatever. And this week's poll, Washington is number eight. Utah is 12. Oregon is 13th. Oregon State is 16. Colorado has risen to 18th, moving them. And then moving into the rankings are Washington State. Had a big win at Wisconsin at number 23. And then UCLA. That's right, motherfuckers. Number 24, cracking the top 25. We had a 35 to 10 win. In San Diego against San Diego State. The Pac-12's previous high was six ranked teams. Achieved multiple times, including last week. This is next level, though. Oregon State and Washington State are the only members 
of the conference committed to it beyond this school year and would like to preserve the Pac-12. But whether it's Power 5 status can be preserved remains to be seen. You know what's kind of got lost in all this? Because I think you could do it with football. It's just, look, man, they charter planes. Same thing with hoops. They're big-time revenue sports. Do it. But why could you not, say, have UCLA go play in the Big Ten in football? And Why is my watch talking? Jeez. Why would you not have them go play hoops and football in the Big Ten? Yet then for every other sport, including baseball, because it's a non-revenue sport, you go ahead and keep the pack alive. Like that would make logical common sense. But, you know, obviously the pack's going to, they want their football revenue and they want their TV revenue and everything else. So, I don't know. The whole thing, it's just a sad situation. After Washington State beat Wisconsin on Saturday, Cougars coach Jake Dickert noted his team's unfortunate position quote we belong in the power five dicker told espn among a swarm of cougars who rushed the field in pullman so it wasn't pullman not in wisconsin number six ohio state number seven penn state and number nine notre dame round out the top 10 notre dame looks good really good uh pull points alabama streak of top 10 rankings is at 128 which dates back to the 2015 season the crimson side streak for is the second longest of the ap Behind Miami's 137 from 85 to 93. Uh, like we mentioned before, moving in, it was UCLA and Washington State were two of the four teams to move into the rankings. Number 22, Miami is ranked for the first time since last September when it fell out of the AP Top 25 after losing to Texas A&M. The Hurricanes beat the Aggies on Saturday to move back in and knock out A&M. See ya! Miami and Florida State both ranked in the regular season for the first time since September of 2017. Number 25, Iowa. Slipped back in after falling out last week. The Hawkeyes beat Iowa State on Saturday. Uh, moving out was Texas A&M. Uh, let's see. Falling out along with Texas A&M were Wisconsin, which lost to Washington State, and Tulane, which lost at home to Ole Miss. Clemson also slipped out of the rankings, ending a streak of 21 appearances. The Tigers barely held on to the spot in the poll at 25 last week, following an opening loss to Duke. Their route of Charleston Southern on Saturday wasn't enough to keep them ranked. I think it's just more about what the other teams were doing. The conference call with Tulane dropping out. There are no ranked teams from conferences outside the Power Five. I don't know. Probably shouldn't be. I actually think it's kind of crazy, but you can make the argument. You have, you have the power five and then you literally, you want to talk about your division two or next level down, put all the other schools in it. The other schools are going to hate it and to say it's absurd, but then you're giving these teams a legit shot, like a, like a Tulane or something, right? A legit shot of winning some kind of national championship. That's just a thought. The last time this happened was a little less than a year ago. The three group of five conference teams end up finishing the season ranked behind the Pac-12's eight ranked teams and is the SEC has five. So all this bullshit talk about the Pac, all of the haters, all the SEC apologists, fuck, man. 
You guys only have five teams in the top 25? Now, your argument could be, well, we beat up on each other. Maybe. I don't know. The ACC has four, the Big Ten has four, and the Big 12 has three. Okay. Uh, One of the things I wanted to bring up, because I noticed this, you had Coco Goff and Shakir Sanders. uh, So you had Coco Goff and Shakir Sanders, which is Dion's kid speaking after their performances, which were obviously lights out. And they're fucking winners. Well, both of them mentioned the fact that in Coco's case, she thanked her haters. She thanked all the people that didn't believe in her. And she mentioned that, like, that's what motivates me. That's what drives me. That what is what keeps me going day in and day out is to go out there and prove all of you wrong. I won this tournament. You guys said, well, I couldn't win this next level tournament. And then I won that level tournament. And you said, well, that's cool, but you're not going to be able to win the next one. Well, guess what? I'm right fucking here, and I just did it. I just took down the U.S. Open. And then you had Dion's kid talking about Nebraska. And... The fact that he felt slighted. He felt like Nebraska's head coach had talked shit in the past and talked shit about his pops. The team had apparently (laughs) met on the Buffalo. And Sanders is like, fuck that. That Buffalo means something to us. And so they used this disrespect as motivation. And it's just got me thinking from an overall standpoint, because we are first and foremost a life optimization podcast. What's the mentality that winners have? And I definitely think this is a huge part of it. And it was on full display in post game press conferences this weekend with Coco and Shakir Sanders. And it was the fact that you sometimes need to find something that pisses you off that provides a little bit of fuck you. And when you're able to find that, then that gives you the extra special motivation. If you watch Tom Brady through the course of his entire career, I don't care what it was. He was never satisfied. And there was always something deflate gate. All that did was piss him off when he had his ACL injury earlier in his career and all these attractors and naysayers and whatever came around, he used that to piss him off. As he was getting older, he kept using everybody else's negativity and everybody else's criticism as his fuel. Well, there's something to that. So think about it. Look, you want to be great. You got to be obsessed. Got to be. You have to keep your blinders on. You have to stay focused within your routine and your work ethic and everything else. But I do think also that if you want to be great, you have to find external motivations that are going to give you that little bit of extra fuck off. And this weekend between Colorado and Coco, 
I think that was a perfect example. So the NFL, <laughs> NFL, I mean, geez, this is, this was, this was wild because the 49ers yesterday, a lot of, I don't know, how are they going to be? You know, that big cock Brock's coming off of his Tommy John surgery. What's going to happen? Well, uh, look, if you didn't believe in big cock Brock last season, you better start believing now. Some of the passes that he made, specifically uh, the one who was like the back shoulder, like there's nowhere to put this ball. There is nowhere to put it. It was one of the better throws that I've ever seen. It was just, it wasn't even comprehensible to think that it was possible. Yet, here he is in his second year coming off of this injury. Looking like Tom Brady in his fucking prime. He's that good. And then afterwards to hear Nick Bosa talk about him. And it was just like, whoa. When you have your teammates believing in you like that, that's everything. That's what matters. So, anyway, uh, the final score of that game, the complete and total domination. Good on Christian McCaffrey, by the way. That was a 65-yard TD run. I have him on fantasy. Although, I will tell you this, and we might even go through the fantasy here in a minute, but I'm pretty sure that I had one of the, the worst fantasy days in the history of fantasy football. I mean, that bad. Horrific. It was fucking awful. I might score an all-time low. Got to check that out. If I, For weeks that I actually set my lineup, because there obviously have been a couple weeks that I hadn't, but for weeks I actually do set my lineup, this was abysmal. So at Niners 37 over the Steelers, then it was the Falcons, 24-10 over the Panthers. They cover the three and a half. The Ravens, 25-9 over the Texans. The Ravens covered the minus nine and a half in that one, the under 43 cash in. So let's see here. There's one under, two under. A lot of unders, it seemed like, yesterday. The Browns, 24-3 over the Bengals. That was a dominant performance by Cleveland. Look the fuck out. Because uh, that was... That was ugly in Cleveland and Joe Burrow. And I don't, I, maybe they rebound from this. No problem. I got to imagine they probably will, but they looked terrible yesterday. I saw the QB rating of Burrow and they were saying that it was the lowest QB rating for a week one starter since ready for this mom, that, 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 that drum roll. Vince Ferragamo. So Vince Ferragamo was the brother of my mom's high school sweetheart, Mike Ferragamo. So it's been a while since a quarterback had that bad of a uh, day. Now, look, dude, I mean, we got to give Vince Ferragamo some love here. I don't want to just bring him up. This guy was a legend quarterback, a long time for the Rams even played for the Buffalo Bills for a little bit. Jaguars 31-21, so the over in this one hit. The Jags cover the minus three and a half. Then you had the Bucks, another undercash. He's in 2017 over the Vikings. Big win for the Buccaneers. 
uh, Baker Mayfield. Uh, uh, get on him, taking over for the Bucs and getting him that victory. Uh, they obviously cover the plus four and then the under 45 catches. And again, the Saints at home, 16-15 over the Titans. The Titans cover the plus three. The under hits as well. Holy shit on the unders. Because a Niners under hit, Niners cover the plus one. That was the most ridiculous spread. And it's kind of like, well, do we not know what's going on here? I I don't know how a spread could be that off. I mean, at no point did the Steelers look like they had a fucking chance. At no point at all. Cardinals go into Washington and they lose 20 to 16. They do cover the plus seven, but another under. The Packers, Jordan Love. Had a really nice day, 38-20 over the Bears. There's an over that hit. It was the Raiders, 17-16. Jimmy G, big late touchdown pass for the Raiders. Uh, They covered the plus three, the under hits as well. Dolphins, Chargers, this was the game of the day. This is the one you want to watch. It was Tua going back and forth with the Chargers defense and with Justin Herbert. It was a, just a fantastic game. I didn't watch it. I, I, I actually didn't even watch the Niner game either. We have no Fox here, by the way, and that's a whole other fucking issue I can get into. Uh, it was the Eagles 25-20 over the Patriots at home. Tom Brady rung the bell in the rain in, I'll say Foxborough. Is that right? Yeah. That's where it used to be at least. Uh, Rams 30 to 13 over the Seahawks. I mean, that's a fucking beatdown in Seattle. Really? They obviously cover the plus four and a half. Yeah, that's a big upset. The under 44 hits. And then the Cowboys 40 to nothing over the New York football giants. (laughs) Cowboys cover the minus three and the under 44 and a half hit. So if you had the over in the Sunday night game, you got to be thinking to yourself, just one fucking touchdown for Daniel Jones and the New York Giants and you cover that shit. One. I mean, what a beatdown. That was bad. Henry was on point uh, with his post on no filter. I mean, there was one. It was like, it's just a war scene. Was that, I think it was Tom Hanks, right? But it was just like, it's like here's a vision of Daniel Jones, the New York Giants. And I, I mean, that's what it looked like. They were just getting fucking pounded, man. I, I turned it off. Started watching the San Francisco Giants game. So overall, let's check this out. Of all the games, there's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. Of the 14 games, 10 and 4 is what the underwent. Major League Baseball, Marlins 5, Phillies 4, Red Sox 7, Orioles 3, Reds 7, Cardinals 1, Rangers beat the A's 9-4, Tigers beat the White Sox 3-2, the Braves beat the Pirates 5-2, some tempers flaring in that one, Pirates apparently hitting uh, one too many of the Braves hitters and Snicker didn't appreciate, he ended up getting thrown out, Mets 2-0 over the Twinkies, Angels 2-1 over the Guardians. Dodgers continue to roll. They beat the Nationals at 7-3. The Astros 12-2 over the Padres. The Astros are just getting ready to peak. And the Giants complete the sweep of the Rockies. 
last night, they were minus 210 favorites. Yeah, heavy favorites, but they win 6-3. So they're only a game and a half back in the wild card. The Yankees, 4-3 winners at the Brewers. Corbin Burns for a long time was no hitting the Yankees. And then there was a couple, like, game-saving catch. There's one, a sick catch uh, by the Brewers. And it ended up doing a whole no-filter network alternative broadcast on this one. But it was Joey Weimer who took the elbow from our dude Sal, who made a, a great catch. But I'm talking this blood and everything dripping down his face afterwards as Sal caught the ball, elbow Weimer, and Weimer's coming off, big old smile on his face and blood fucking everywhere. Just a really cool picture. If I'm Joey Weimer, that's my new screenshot uh, or profile pic. Blue Jays 5-2 over the Royals. And then the Cubs took down the Arizona Diamondbacks 5-2 as well. So looking at the standings in Major League Baseball, let's get into these real quick because it is nitty-gritty time. I mean, we got, let's see here. Not that many games left. I mean, the Orioles are now at the 90 win mark. They're 90 and 52 on top of the American League East. The Rays are three back at 88 and 56. Then you have the Twins at 75 and 68. The Guardians are 68 and 76, seven and a half back. That division's over. The Astros are starting to separate themselves from the Rangers and the Mariners. They have a two and a half game lead on the Mariners and a three game lead. On the Rangers, the Braves up to 93 wins now, 93 and 49, best record in all baseball, 15 up on the Phillies. So they have no chance, at least in the division. Uh, The National League Central has the Brewers three up on the Cubs, six and a half up on the Reds, and then the Dodgers are 13 up on the Diamondbacks. Well, who gives a shit? The exciting stuff, really, I mean, outside of maybe the AL East or the National League Central is in the wild card. Because currently, right now, you have the Rays, the Blue Jays, and the Mariners. All in wild card position. They would make the playoffs right now. But you have the Rangers just a half game back. Boston, eh, pretty much, they're fucking done. They're six back. Yankees, eight back, no chance. And Yankees, if you keep an eye or you give a shit about the over 500 streak that they've had since 1992, they're 71 and 72. So they're now a game below 500. In the National League for the wild card, the Phillies are pretty much in. I mean, they're four up. Then you have the Cubs and the Diamondbacks. The Cubs are two up on the Diamondbacks. And then behind them, and this is where it gets really interesting, you have the Marlins at a half game back, the Giants at a game and a half back, the Reds at a game and a half back. So they all still at this point have a chance. Okay. This was the big story around Major League Baseball. George Kirby is a pitcher for the Seattle Mariners. And the other night, he was put back out on the mound after pitching six innings. He was at Right about 90 pitches. And he goes out there and surrenders 
the go-ahead home run. So he basically was asked after the game about what had transpired, and he said that he wished that he had not been on the mound. And then proceeded to say that he was going to talk to the manager, Scott Service, and there was going to be conversations about him being out there. Well, apparently Kirby thought he had had enough, and whether he was tired or just didn't want to pitch anymore, I don't know. There was nothing that indicated that. You just got to figure that he thought he was done. And this turned in to a complete and total fucking debacle because what happened was it lit up the baseball world. And Roger Clemens was pretty much the one that started it, saying that this shit's not going to fly in the old days. So taking a look at the article here, it's a Seattle Mariners young starter, George Kirby, an all-star for the first time this summer. And a vital part of the playoff push found himself as perhaps the most vilified player in the game. Saturday, thanks to a single soundbite. Kirby, 25, had everyone from seven-time Cy Young Award winner Roger Clemens to all-star pitchers Mark Bowler, Jerry Weaver, Brandon McCarthy, and Dallas Braden to World Series champion Doug McCavich openly berating him on social media, questioning whether he deserves to be a major league player. Baseball executives and scouts also privately reveled their disgust towards Kirby when they saw the video clip on X, formerly Twitter, Friday night, complaining that he should have been taken out of the game after six innings instead of going out for the seventh. Kirby had thrown 93 pitches and had a 4-2 lead heading into the seventh. He then gave up the game-tying homer on his 103rd and final pitch with the Mariners losing 7-4 to Tampa Bay. Here is the direct quote. I wish I wasn't out there for the seventh, to be honest, Kirby told reporters. I was at 90 pitches. I didn't think I needed to go anymore. But it is what it is. There will be conversations soon. Kirby's complaint went viral. So here was the reaction around Major League Baseball. Mark Mulder posted, can't imagine ever having the thought at any point on the mound or during a game, much less repeating to reporters. Crazy that someone can be so mentally weak who plays a sport at a high level. Weaver, this is why I'll never any... I'll never... I'll never be a coach of any kind in the big leagues, to be honest. I shouldn't have been out there. I threw 90 pitches. What the fuck? Embarrassingly, truly embarrassing. Doug McCavich, you have three weeks left in the playoff race and you want out after 90? Sadly, this is how most minor league systems are developing starters these days. And then Clemens, this is tough to hear. Would not fly in the old days. Unfortunately, this is how players are being taught with modern analytics. What are your all thoughts? Brandon McCarthy. Don't know all the details here, but this is really weird. I get the feeling if you're out of gas, I get the feeling if you're out of gas, but I can't imagine ever verbalizing this publicly. Kirby spoke to Mariners manager Scott Service on Saturday morning and apologized. Obviously, I screwed up. Kirby told reporters, that's not me. Skip's always got to pry the ball out of my hands. Just... Super uncharacteristic of me as a player and who I am on the mound. I love competing. Kirby has a 10-9 record, a 3-4-8 ERA, and he's been struggling as late. He's only won the 6 ERA in his last 
four stars. Okay. Look. Huh. Unfortunately, you can't take words back. We can apologize for them. But once they're out there in the X-verse, they're out there. So on that note, my initial thought was probably what 90% of people's initial thought was. What a fucking pussy. Okay. It's easy to pile on George Kirby at this point. But, and I know this sounds pretty ridiculous. There's an element of Kirby's comments that I actually appreciate. And it's the fact that he was being honest that after 90 pitches and a 4-2 lead, he was fucking done. He felt like that was the right decision, not only for him and his health and what he had left, but also for the team. That was going to give them the best shot to win. Now, you don't say it. You don't ever fucking say it because of exactly what has happened. The entire baseball world piling on him. But I also believe that there is, there's a little bit of empathy that we need to have for the situation. Not for Kirby. I I don't give a fuck. I all do respect. Like seems like I'm sure a nice guy, but this isn't about him. This is about the way we're grooming pitchers. And so it's kind of like we're training them to do one thing. And then when you go ahead and ask them to do something else, and then either they don't get it done or they don't want to do it, or they voice an opinion later about it. We come back and we're like, Oh man, you got to have balls. Like you got to be the dude. You got to want the fucking ball. Like all this stuff. I get it. And trust me, that's the mentality that I want out of my guy. But we also have to remember we're starting to train these starting pitchers. Not starting to. We have been for a while. We're training them to be pussies. We're training them to only throw a certain amount of pitches. We're training them to turn the ball over to the bullpen in the fourth, fifth, sixth inning. Even the second, if you count the openers. So, because this is happening, and then all of a sudden you get a little backlash, which is just George Kirby in a very vulnerable moment. You could tell he was beat down. And you mentioned the 6 ERA, or I mentioned the 6 ERA as of late, which he's obviously has not been throwing the ball great. And we want to write him off as being this big whiny bitch. Well, is he a big whiny bitch? Yeah, maybe. Definitely were big whiny bitch comments. But I think baseball, coaching staffs, front offices need to look themselves in the mirror and ask, have we created this? 
because I'm pretty sure you fucking have, by not letting these guys go out there and throw 100-plus pitches every five days, and we're demanding that they throw harder and with nastier spin rates than ever before. Man, what happened to the dude that could take the ball and give you seven, eight innings? I'm not even talking about complete games. Dude, we, we hardly ever see guys go fucking seven innings anymore. Well, is it George Kirby's fault? Yeah, it was his fault that he made those dumbass comments. And I don't even know if they're dumbass. I'll be careful even saying that because they're fucking true. That's how he felt. And that's what he said. And now we want to ostracize him from the game of baseball because of it. I'm not going to do it. Look, I never want to hear that out of my fucking player. I don't, at least not publicly, but there's a reason. And I don't know if the conversation was had between him and Scott service. When I'm coaching, whether it was the bananas or it's the let them play squad, after every single inning, I go up the starting pitcher. I'm, I'm talking first inning, every single inning. Hey, how are we feeling? All good? And when I get the, like, yeah, yeah, you could tell when it's the, yeah, take me out of the fucking game, please. I've seen that before. Saw it last weekend. It happens, and I get it. But they still say the, yeah, with a little bit of, uh, so, did Scott Service talk to George Kirby and ask him how he felt before going back out? Or, if Kirby really did think he was done, dude, just walk over to Skip and say, yo. And I, I, I know this may, the outside world would perceive him being you know, a weenie for doing this, but be like, Scott, I'm done, man. That's, that's good. I think that's it. I think that's it. Right? And sometimes it's not a lack of belief in yourself. It's just that you're not feeling it. And ultimately, I can make the argument that you're a better team player if you do ask out. Because if you don't want the fucking ball in your hand, you shouldn't have it. I can't tell you how many times that I've put a kid on the mound that wanted to be on the fucking mound. Burnsy, Burnsy, can I pitch? Can I pitch? Same thing with bananas. When I have guys that showed up in my office and said, you know, Burnsy, hey, is it possible you think I might be able to get the rock tonight? My family's in town. and yeah. Fuck yeah. Let's go. I want the guy on the mound that wants a gosh damn ball. That matters. That's important. So, again, just the overall whatever in this situation is, was it smart for George Kirby to come out and publicly make those comments? No, it was fucking stupid. Does this mean he's a complete and total pussy? No, but I think we're all going to keep close tabs on him going forward. Does this mean there's a breakdown in the way we're training these guys to 
pitch at the highest level. We're training starting pitchers to pitch. Yes, there is. And if you asked coaches and manager, coaches, managers, and general managers about it, they'll tell you. They're like, yeah, we're doing this because the statistics say that that's, that's important. That's like, this is going to give us the best chance to win. That's why they do it. So I look, it's going forward. I feel for the kid. I, I really do. And the funny thing is I read this last night. Let me see if I can find it. But basically it was saying that George Kirby, the same guy that won it out after 90, threw 153 fucking pitches in a high school game. So if you want to be so critical in this moment, understand this is a guy that has a long history and has posted up. And he's nasty too, by the way. He really is. Anyhow, uh, show's way too long. I apologize for that. Brian Hayes, by the way, I need to make mention of this, made uh, p- comments publicly about the robo-ump. This article showed up this morning. Uh, Pittsburgh third baseman Cabrian Hayes pleaded with Major League Baseball on Sunday to institute the automated ball strike system after an obvious missed call and a subsequent conversation with the umpire. The call took place during Saturday's game against the Atlanta Braves with plate umpire Bill Miller calling a strike on a pitch shown to be well outside the zone as Hayes was starting towards first base after flipping his bat back for what he thought was a walk. After chatting with Miller as he went back to retrieve his bat, Hayes struck out on the next pitch. Hayes said he attempted to discuss the call with Miller after the game and shared his side of the conversation on social media along with an image of the pitch. Quote, some umpires really don't care, Hayes posted. 3-1 call, not even close. I told, I hold him accountable after the game walking off the field and his response is, quote, a shrug. I give you a chance to hit a home run. That tells me you don't care at all. That's how I would perceive it if I was a hitter. That's what I tell the boys all the time when there's a dog shit, say, call that should have been ball four. It's all right. We want to hit. We want to hit, whatever. But uh, the time has come. He then says, no accountability. Bring ABS, please, which is the automated strike zone uh, at MLB. Any reference MLB? I don't. I mean, I I haven't seen this. I haven't. I mean, it's it's wild. Because I I have seen players talk about the automated strike zone independently, but none of them want to piss off the umpires. So they all have kept their mouth shut. But this is the first one that I can remember just publicly going out there and saying, bring on the fucking robots. Pretty cool. The uh, weather today, by the way, it's going to be another gorgeous day here in Tahoe. Currently 72 degrees outside already. The lake is calling my name. High of 75, low of 38 when I went out running this morning. It was perfectly brisk and for all of you joining on the live interactive broadcast, 
that we have here on No Filter Network. Uh, we're live on No Filter, and then immediately after this show gets uploaded to all these different spots. But if you want to join us live, please do. Come to nofilter.net, and we are basically Monday through Friday at 8.30 a.m.-ish on No Filter. As I mentioned, Truckee, 72 degrees. going to be absolutely fucking beautiful. Half Moon Bay, Giuseppe Pepe Manuelli. So if you want your city read out, I'll do it. Hit me up, whether it's a email or you guys let me know in the chat, or we can basically hit me up on social, and I'll get your hometown into the rotation. New York, Viro, Chief Waters, 81 degrees, high of 82 Cloudy skies, a little flood watch. Looks like it's going to be raining uh, starting at 2 p.m. All the way to 7 p.m. Phoenix, Michelle Drew, Kowalski, 96 degrees high of 105, low of 85. Armored, California, Montgomery's, Pontarolo. Sorry, I didn't get out that game yesterday, Aaron. 78 degrees high of 90, low of 62. Mason was pitching for the Auburn Aces out in Incline. Duluth, Minnesota. Gene, good morning, Gene. 64 degrees High of 64, beach hazard statements. Be careful by the beach. Chattanooga, Amo, 85 degrees high, 88, low is 66. Gary Tagliafico in San Mateo, California. 66 degrees currently right now, high of 74. Las Vegas, Nevada, 83 degrees, high of 93 for Michael. Savannah, Georgia, land of the Plotnos, Uncle Jesse. All the rest of the crew out there, 89 degrees, high of 89, mostly sunny. Fresno, Brothers Batoyan, 79 degrees, high of 95. Buckwheat in Bakersfield, 82 degrees, high of 94. Stephen Luker, 84 degrees in Hemet, California. John Emanuel Ramos, Henderson, Makati City International, once again, motherfuckers. 82 degrees, high of 88. Duncan Dad in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, 79 degrees. Flood watch, look out for the uh, raging waters out there, Duncan Dad. High of 81. Montgomery, Alabama, home of the Biscuits. 90 degrees, high of 93. Germantown, Jesse Burns, my brother from another mother. 63 degrees, high of 65, low of 56. Orchard Park, New York. Buffalo Bills playing the night, by the way. Against the Jets. Going to be uh, fun to watch that one. 73 degrees, high of 75. That game starts at, I believe, 5 o'clock Pacific time. So you know where to find me. It's the one time I'm going to sit down and watch a game start to finish is when the Buffalo Bills play south haven mississippi 65 degrees high of 68 boise idaho rj 76 degrees high of 89 and pop art out there in grayford texas 81 degrees high of 89 and a quick shout out to rocker b ranch the premier baseball destination if you haven't been there if you haven't heard of it just look up rocker b ranch another one of our great title sponsors all right of all the shows that was certainly one of them uh, sorry about the length. I mean, to keep you guys here too long. But let's finish up with great quotes from great leaders, a book given to me by my dad. Cool little inscription toward greater success and enjoyment. He actually gave it to me uh, pretty soon before he passed. But just absolute gems in here. So... I'm going to open it up to the JFK page. Well, just because it's just where I ended up. The American by nature is optimistic. He is experimental, an inventor, 
and a builder who builds best when called upon to build greatly. On that note, just keep building. I'm heading to the lake, back of the DH tomorrow. That's it. Everyone have a fantastic day. See ya!